Hey everybody, uh, this is Liam Hardy. I'm the pastor at Connection Church Athens and welcome to the Connection Church Athens podcast. Uh, most of you know each week we post the recording of our live sermons on, on this podcast, but uh, due to a technical error yesterday, we were not able to record our sermon as we studied Romans 1, 18 through 25. And this passage is so important, so integral to to what God's been teaching us through the book of Romans. And so I wanted to come back and record this sermon um, for those listening on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and so many of you who join us that way. And so uh, it's Monday morning. I'm sitting in my office. I've got my coffee and my Bible open. Maybe you can grab a cup of coffee and we can talk about Romans 1. If you hear a sound like a dog barking or maybe a little girl running into the room at any point, just we're going to roll with it. And I'm excited to do this kind of in a little bit of a different format. Romans 1, 18 through 25. Let's read our text together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this time uh, that we get to come and study uh, your word revealed to us in Romans chapter 1. God, and in this passage, we see our condition. Apart from Christ, Lord, we see uh, the need for the gospel, Lord. And I just pray as as we begin to, to launch out into this new section of Romans, God, that we would see truth. We would see your grace revealed to us in the person of Jesus. To you be the glory forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever uh, woken up one morning maybe and you uh, realized that there was an issue with your health? Maybe uh, you woke up and you're, you you were, had a stuffy nose and a sore throat and maybe you were feeling achy and kind of chilly all over. And so as a response to that issue, you decided to play Google Doctor. Do you know what I mean when I, when I use the term Google doctor? I think many of us do this. We sit there on our, on our couches with no medical experience at all, but we think, I've got my phone and I've got Google, therefore I can diagnose myself. And so what do we do? We, we type our symptoms into the search box and we hit go. And we think, wow, we're pretty smart. And if we could only write our own prescriptions, we could really save a lot of money. 
Has anybody ever scared themselves playing Google Doctor? Maybe you're sitting on your couch after a, a big meal and you feel some heartburn and so you search sharp pains in chest and Google proceeds to tell you that you're about to die. Sometimes playing Google Doctor could get us in a little bit of trouble. And I think the reason we all do that is because there is a desire in each one of us to understand the issues we face and to find the solutions to the issues that we we face. And that's a good thing for us to want to do, not to avoid issues, but to to want to kind of sort of tackle them head on. And I'm going to need our church and you listening to me right now to sort of tap into that desire to understand problems and find the solution to problems for the next six weeks. Because last week we looked at Romans 1 verses 16 through 17 and Paul gave us his thesis for the entire book of Romans. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous man shall live by faith. Just a quick recap of last week, right? He told us that the gospel is the most valuable thing in the world. It's the power of God to save anyone who would believe in the work of Christ. And we need the gospel because the gift righteousness of God, that gift of salvation that none of us deserve and none of us can work for on our own is revealed to us and we receive it by faith. And so for the rest of the book, he's going to be unpacking that thesis. And where does Paul start? He starts with the bad news. Perhaps you've heard before that the word gospel literally means good news. And to understand the good news of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news. You see, the gospel can't be rescue until we understand that we're in danger because of sin. The gospel can't be freedom until we understand that we're in bondage to sin apart from Christ. And so for the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, and for the first 20 verses of chapter 3, Paul is going to give us a detailed and comprehensive theology of sin. And so for six weeks, we're going to study sin. I know many of you are going to be so excited and you can't wait to get up early and head to church because the pastor's on his six-week series about sin. That doesn't sound very fun, but church, it is it is necessary and it is good for us to do. And the point of Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20 is not to make you just feel guilty or shameful. It is to help you understand your condition and my condition apart from Christ. It's to help us understand the bad news so that we can better appreciate the good news. So we're going to head into the bad news of sin so we can understand the sweetness of of the gospel. And in the beginning of this section, right at the end, there is hope. And that hope is that gift righteousness of God revealed to us in the gospel. Paul mentions it in Romans 1 verse 17. And then if you turn to Romans 3 verse 21, he mentions that gift righteousness again when he gets done with the section about sin. What does he say? Romans 3 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And this is our hope that we have all sinned and fallen short. And yet God has given us freely his righteousness, his forgiveness, his grace, his redemption through the person of Jesus. And so here we go with hope 
into the bad news. And let me tell you just quickly how we're going to attack the rest of Romans 1. We're going to look at Romans 1 today. We're going to look at uh, the rest of it next Sunday. And as I was studying 118 through 132 for the next two weeks, thinking about the rest of this chapter, I realized really what, what Paul was doing, and it reminded me of something we do in our Heart and Soul class as a church. Um, if you do not know, Heart and Soul is a three-week class that we have for people who have just made the decision that Connection Church Athens is their church home, and it's a way for us to tell them how they can be a part of our church and, and lock arms with our leadership. And so if you uh, call Connection Church Athens home, but you have haven't gone to heart and soul, that is your next step, and we would love to see you there. But in our third session of Heart and Soul, we talk about this idea of different areas where we need to be loving God with our lives. And we use this illustration of three body parts that all start with the letter H, so it's easy to remember. We say that we need to be loving God with our heads, right? And that's growing in our knowledge of God and learning more about Him, studying His Word, that sort of thing. We need to grow in our, our heads with and our head knowledge with God. Second, we need to be loving God with our hearts, and that's with our worship in our affection, just falling in love with Jesus every single day and, and pursuing a relationship with Him. So when we're growing our knowledge with our heads and our affections and worship with our heart. And then finally, we need to be loving God with our hands. And this is the call to action that each one of us should be serving and worshiping God by the way we live and the way we interact with others. We love God with our head, our heart, and our hands. And in Romans chapter 1, from 18 to verse 32, Paul's really telling us how sin has corrupted our head, our heart, and our hands. And so our passage today really teaches us how sin has corrupted our heads and how sin has corrupted our hearts. And so first, I want us to look at the broken heads. I want us to look at the broken knowledge um, that we have about God because of sin. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. Again, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. I want you to just notice quickly in those three verses, just the, the, the words and the terms there that have to do with the knowledge. In verse 18, he says um, that he talks about us suppressing the truth about God. And then he tells us that the things about God are evident to us in verse 19. And that God has been revealing himself through creation in verse 20 so that we could understand. He's talking about knowledge and he's telling us that because of sin, our knowledge of God is broken. Before we dive into kind of all three of these verses, I want us just to kind of focus on that first term in verse 18, the wrath of God, because that's one that scares us. That's one that, that we, we have pause as we read the scriptures and we think, what does that mean? I want to remind you of the flow of thought in, in verses 16 through 18, but Paul told us in verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God because verse 17, it reveals the righteousness of God. And then in verse 18, he describes why we need the gospel. And it's because of the wrath of God. 
in verse 18. It's unfortunate that when we think of the wrath of God, we project a sinful human emotion of anger onto God's perfection and onto God's holiness. And this is truly a mistake. When we think of the term wrathful, we think of someone who would be unfair and unjust and uncontrolled in their anger. And that is not a a character, a quality that is good. That's actually a character flaw, and that cannot be understood to describe our God. Our God is perfect. Our God is free of sin, and He is holy. And so the wrath of God is actually an outworking of His holiness. Because He is holy, He will always stand in opposition to sin. You think about it this way. If I'm walking uh, the streets of a of a large city and I see someone being being hurt, maybe they're, they're being uh, uh, mugged and somebody's uh, taking their, their purse or taking their backpack and, and beating them up, if I were to just turn away from that and walk away from that, that's not a good thing to do. In fact, an, an exercise of my wrath and my judgment on that person in the, in, to help the, per, the victim, the person who's being hurt, would be an outworking of righteousness. And our God is righteous. He is holy. And because he is so holy, he stands in opposition to sin. That is a wonderful introduction to the bad news. Because we're described in verse 18 as well. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I will be the first to admit that that applies to me. I am not holy and righteous like our God. I am a part of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he tells us about the knowledge of God. He says in verse 18 that we suppress the truth about God in our unrighteousness. When I hear that word suppress, I just think about pushing something down and sweeping it under the rug, getting it out of sight and out of mind. But he says that we have some knowledge about God. We just suppress it. We just push it down. And where is this knowledge of God that we we have? Well, it's in verse 20. Did you see it? It says, for the since, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. God is revealing himself and has always revealed himself to humanity through creation. Now, this does not mean that we can fully know God through creation, but we're told specifically in verse 20, there are two things we can learn about God through the world that he has made, that we can learn about the invisible God because of the visible world. The two things listed in verse 20 are we can learn about his eternal power and his divine nature. So if you go stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you look out and you see the creation of God, we would say, well, our God is eternally powerful. Look at what he has made. Or we spread out a blanket and we're looking up at the stars and we see a maybe a shooting star, a meteor shower, and we think, man, look at the divine nature of God. This was not created by accident. Some Someone above me and greater than me made all of this. He says, these things have been clearly seen through what has been made so that humanity is without excuse before God. He's saying that general revelation, this this revealing of God through creation is enough 
so that one day when I stand before God, I will have no excuse for my unrighteousness and my ungodliness. Now, I mentioned this term before, but what Paul's describing here in in verses 18 through 20 is general revelation. It is revelation or God revealing himself to all people at all time through the work of creation. And notice in verses 18 through 20, he's not telling us that, that general revelation can save us. In fact, general revelation only condemns us. It is just enough knowledge of, of God so that we would stand before him and have no excuse. We can't be saved by looking at the Grand Canyon. We can learn about God, but we can't be saved. And that's why we need special revelation. And when we talk about God revealing himself, we only have two categories that we use. General revelation through creation. That's just knowing about God, but not enough to be saved. We need special revelation. So what is special revelation? It is the gospel described in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the message about the work of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. This is special revelation. The person of Christ is God's special revelation to us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, that God has spoken to us in many ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his Son. And I have laying out before me on my desk this incredible treasure of special revelation that we have, God's word. How do you know about Jesus? You know about Jesus because the revelation given to you through the word of God. And so this is our special revelation. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, not in creation. And so we uh, cling to and we boast in and our confidence is in the special revelation which leads us to salvation. Now we need to talk about a dilemma that this creates. Every Sunday at our church, before we begin the sermon, we highlight an unreached people group. This would be a people group separated by language or culture to be a distinct ethnicity and they're all over the world and, and, and on so many different continents. And we would put one of those people groups up. They're less than 2% evangelical population. They don't have the gospel and they don't have a significant church presence. And uh, this week we, we highlighted the Ache people in China, relatively small people group, only 42,000 people living in China. And listen to this. They don't have one Christian among their people group. Not one Christian, not one word of the Bible translated in their language, which means that the Aceh people in China have a 0% chance to go to heaven. They all have general revelation. They can all look at creation and see something about God's eternal power and divine nature. They can understand their life as a puzzle and see a, a, a missing piece, but they don't have the gospel, which is the missing piece leading to salvation. And so they will not go to heaven. Now, you might say, well, Liam, God's powerful. God could, could reveal himself specially to that people. Jesus could show up among the Aceh people and do an incredible work. And I agree with you, he could. But I just don't think that's going to happen. 
Why is that not going to happen? Does God not love them? Oh, he loves them. But we know the plan of God to reach the Ache people and to reach the other unreached people groups in our world. You know, Jesus came to earth, and he didn't reveal himself to all people groups when he came. He came to one nation, and he died for the sins of the whole world. And then when Christ rose from the grave, he, he challenged his disciples. He commanded his disciples to make disciples of all nations, all ethnies, Matthew 28. And that's the plan of God, to empower the church. That's you and me, people that have been redeemed to make disciples of all nations, including the Ache. Paul talked about in Colossians chapter one that he had received special revelation about Christ and it was a stewardship of God for the benefit of others. I'm sitting here uh, on my desk, I'm looking, I have got uh, two Bibles, print copies, and then I've got my iPad and I've got my phone, which would have so much, uh, so many different translations and resources of special revelation for me. Church, we have a stewardship of God given to us for the benefit of others. And so Connects Church Athens will not suppress the truth about God. We will not suppress the Great Commission either. This is the task that God has given the church to reach all nations with the gospel. Paul spells this out for us in Romans 10, verses 11 through 15. I'm getting them ahead of myself. Listen, listen to this. He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Familiar verse here. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul begins to work that out logically and he realizes a huge problem. How then are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul's making a lot of sense. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our hearts should break for those who do not know the name of Jesus. And how are they going to hear a preacher needs to be sent to them? And is the call of the church today. I pray that we would be a sending church. We've seen the broken heads, the broken knowledge of God in verses 18 through 20. And now I want us to talk about the broken hearts. Remember that idea is we're supposed to love God with our minds and by knowing him in verses 18 is telling us that instead of knowing God, we've been uh, suppressing the truth about God and our sin. And then the second one here is our broken affections, that we are designed to worship our creator, but instead we have been running after idols. And I want us to look specifically at verse 23 and, and verse 25. They're telling us similar things here, and I think they're, they're worth being studied. First, let's look at verse 23. It says, And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Here's what's going on. And we see it in verse 23 and verse 25, but Paul describes for us a sinful exchange. 
You know, I was thinking about it as a kid. I, I never really traded with other kids. You hear stories about that, right? I'll, I'll trade you these marbles for, for this, uh, you know, toy car or something like that. And I never did that as a kid. And the reason I never did it was because um, most of the time kids would come to me and, and request a trade. And, and I would always think in the back of my mind, if they want to make this trade, they're, they think they're coming out ahead, in some way, and I didn't want to be conned. I didn't want to want to draw the short straw. I didn't want to come out the loser, and so I would never trade. In church, we have come out the loser in verses 23 and 25 because we exchanged the glory of God for an idol, and we traded the truth about God for a lie. That's what it says in verse 23 about idolatry. It says, We traded the glory of God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals, or of crawling creatures. I can't help but think about the Exodus narrative when Moses goes on Mount Sinai to receive the law from the Lord. And while he's gone, the people of Israel gather their gold together to make an image, to make an idol of a four-footed creature, the golden calf. When we hear that term idolatry, or we think about situations like the golden calf, we, we would say sitting here in America in 2023, well, that's, that's so antiquated and that's so distant, right? Nobody does that now, or at the very least, nobody's doing that on this continent. And both of those assumptions are, are, are just untrue. I went to Minneapolis, Minnesota about a month ago and I went to a Buddhist temple and I saw the thousands of idols that people were bowing to and worshiping. Some of these idols had water in front of them and milk in front of them because the idols needed to eat in the minds of the worshipers. That's this year that's in our country. We're not as civilized as we think, church. But the biblical definition of idolatry obviously includes that sort of worship. But I think if, if you would say, I don't struggle with idolatry in that way, verse 25 is for you. Listen to this definition of idolatry. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So our definition of idolatry doesn't just need to be bowing to a hunk of wood or a hunk of metal, but it is any time we worship a creature or a created thing instead of our creator. A helpful definition of idolatry is when we make any good thing a God thing. And when we realize that, that definition of idolatry, we start to see the American dream as a form of idolatry. What's the American dream? Get married and pour all of your devotion and your love and your energy and your purpose in life will be your spouse and have two kids and pour all of your love, all of your affection, all of your devotion into them and they will be your purpose in life. And get a job and, a, and amass material things for yourself to build your own ki- your kingdom. And, and that will be all of your devotion, all of your affection. That will be your purpose in life. Get the house, get the car, and, and that will be 
your purpose. We bow to idols too. I love my wife. I love my daughter. But they're not God, which means they are not worthy of the glory and they're not worthy of the worship. And the best way I can serve them is to love them and nurture them to worship the Creator alongside me. That's what we need to be doing. Instead of worshiping and serving the ones we're called to lead to the Creator. This is profound. Paul's widening the definition of idolatry to more than just bowing to an image. But it's whenever we place our heart's affection and our service and our purpose and our worship onto a created thing. I don't want us to miss, though, Paul's answering a question that many of us get wrong. It's a simple question. It might be one that we could see us asking even in our kids' ministry. But, but the answer is harder than, than you would think. And, and that's the answering this question. Why is sin bad? I want you to think for just a minute. Why is sin bad? And don't answer too quickly. I think we get this one wrong. Because we would answer it as sin is bad because it hurts me. Or sin is bad because it hurts another person. And with that mindset, we begin to rank sins in order of the seriousness of the offense toward the offended party. We would all agree murder is bad. Why is murder bad? Because I killed someone else. It's bad because I hurt them. Or or pedophilia is bad because I hurt someone who couldn't defend themselves. But what, what about if I just hit somebody and they really had it coming? What if I just hit them? That's not as bad as murder, right? Because I didn't kill them. And you see how we begin to rank sins on a scale based on who we offended. And that's where we get it wrong, church. Because if I hit you or cheat you or mistreat you, you are not the primary offended party. And at the end of my life, I do not have to deal with your wrath. I have to deal with God's. And my anger, my possessions, my lust are all idols of the heart. And when I give into them, I worship and serve created things instead of the creator. And I'm giving created things the glory that only God deserves. Why is sin bad? Because it robs God of the glory that he alone deserves. See, pedophilia is wrong because it offends a holy God. And then the world would say, well, then adultery must be better than than pedophilia, but it's really just as bad. Why? Because adultery offends a holy God and robs him of glory. The world would probably say, well, pornography would be better than adultery and pedophilia. But no, it's just as wrong. Why? Because it offends our holy God and robs him of the glory. 
The world would say one lustful look is is better than pornography and surely adultery and definitely pedophilia, but it really isn't. Because at every level of sin is false worship, misplaced affection, which robs God of the glory. This is why when David raped Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, he prayed to God against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And I believe, church, that what we're discussing here, depending on your answer to that question, why is sin bad? We find the difference between sorry people and repentant people. There are a lot of sorry people. There are fewer repentant. There are so many people who are sorry for what they've done. And they're sorry that they got caught. And they're sorry for the consequences they endured. And they're sorry for the consequences their wife and kids uh, kind of endured because of their sin. And they recognize they offended so many people. But they're not repentant. Because they don't understand that all sin is primarily against a holy God. And I ask you, have you dealt with your sin? And when I say that, I'm not talking about just confessing it to your spouse. Or confessing it to friends or to family. But have you confessed it to a holy God? Church, when we do that, we're truly repenting. Because we're understanding that sin is about idolatry and robbing God of the glory. We sing several songs in church that just talk about this the right way. Christ be magnified, the bridge part says, I will not bow to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. The chorus to great are you, Lord, says, It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. And church, you and I have failed in that. God has given us his breath in our lungs, and yet we pour out praise to other things. And when you look at our behavior church. Frankly, there's just no hope because we have all fallen short, Romans 3.23, of the glory of God. And so we're going to sit in this place, but we're not going to despair because we're going to remember the hope in Romans 1.16 and 17 in the midst of Romans 18-25. And this is why This bad news in 18 through 25 is the reason why the gospel is really good news. 
The message of the gospel is that you and I have rebelled against our God and we have bowed to created idols and we have worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, the one who made us and sustains us right now. And yet God did not forsake us. He did not pour out his wrath on us the moment we had worshiped the creature rather than the creator. But our God did not forsake us when when we were faithful. He was faithful and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, eagle with God to become flesh. And Christ lived among the idol worshipers, but he did not bow to idols. He always stood strong and worshiped God, even when he was tempted in every way as we are. He was obedient to the Father. And that obedience led him to the cross to endure the wrath of God. Christ didn't deserve the wrath of God, but he went to the cross to pay for your sins and for mine. And 2,000 years before you were born, Jesus paid for your wrath. And he dealt with it before a holy God. So that you could be given the righteousness of God. You and I don't deserve that because we've worshipped idols. Christ offers it freely, and he will empower us by the Holy Spirit. This is incredible, to turn our hearts away from idols, to worship the Creator the way we were designed. That's the beauty of the gospel. You and I have chosen the wrong thing. We suffer from misplaced worship. And instead of God pouring out his wrath, he sent the Son to endure the wrath for us so that we could worship the Creator again. Why is sin bad? Because it robs God of glory. Why is the gospel good? Because it recreates humanity to be able to glorify the Creator the way the Creator designed. Our theme for our study through Romans is Romans 11, 33 to 36. I want to read this passage. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it would be paid back to him? For from him and through him, and through and to him, excuse me, are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I want us to think about that last verse. We're told about all things. That's, that's a lot of stuff. All things are from him. All things are from our God, which means that all things find their origin in God. And then second, all things are through him, right now, everything is being sustained by our God. And finally, to him are all things. Everything created was designed to worship him. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word in Romans chapter 1. And God, it 
It's just amazing how the word of God cuts so deep. So accurately to see our condition of worshiping idols. God, I pray for anyone listening right now, Lord, as they're identifying the idols in their heart. First, they would look to the cross and they would recognize the work of Christ to securing their salvation, being the propitiation for that wrath. And God, that is an act of worship to the work of Christ. We would remove the idols from our heart. Holy Spirit. Even as we pray, Lord, would you remove the idols so that we would be free and redeemed to place our affection on the Creator alone and that we would glorify you with our lives. God, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.